Hello, I'm Jonathan Smith. I'm the lead pastor at One Church TO, and you're listening to the teaching time from our weekend gathering. We're an imperfect community of over 70 nationalities and five generations who are attempting to follow and shine Jesus in the greater Toronto area. Our vision, it's so simple. We want to help people from all walks of life know God, love people, and in turn, impact our city for good. We've designed these weekends to be meaningful, challenging, and encouraging, and I hope that's what you get from listening. Good morning. Everyone at One Church CEO Live, everyone at Agent Cord. Uh, before we jump into the teaching, I want to talk about my face for a moment. Hey, have you noticed something a little different on my face? I know you might be thinking, Jonathan, it doesn't look good any week, but it looks a little worse this week. Okay, so uh, there's two reasons. If you follow me on Instagram, you already know why. But if you're a redhead, you probably know what this is. So I'm just going to talk about it so I don't have to talk about it in the lobby and everything. Basically, I went to my doctor this week, and I had some sun damage to my face. And so uh, he pulled out something, if you're a kid, you ask your parents for Christmas for this. This is amazing. It's a liquid nitrogen gun. How cool is that? And basically he kind of froze three different areas and I'm left looking like this. So I'm healing up. There's nothing wrong. It's just, you got to look at me. I'm so sorry, but this is, or there's a better story. I could have started by just saying, Hey, you should see the other guy. You should see the other guy. Listen, we're in the last teaching in our YOLO series, and next week we are going to be doing the questions and answers, and I hope this series has done what Dr. Van and Pastor Keith and I had hoped it would. I hope it has filled you with fresh confidence, anticipation, uh, that you are expectant and looking forward instead of feeling fearful and worry-filled about what's next, you're leaning in with confidence. Now, you still have time to submit questions. You can do this. This is your last week, your last opportunity, because next week we're going to answer as many questions as we can about the end of the world, about heaven, hell, whatever your questions might be. We're going to do what we can to answer them, as many of them, for next week. But please submit them either today or tomorrow so we have time to prepare for you. So this is your last opportunity to submit. So let's review where we've been and then we'll jump into the teaching. Basically, when we started the teaching, Dr. Van started by showing us this chart. Do you remember the chart? I think we've used it every week so far. So the idea is simply this. It has a beginning, and in the beginning, God created this world and everything in it, every human being, uh, uh, humanity, the animals, the planet, the sky, the, the stars, everything was put in place by the creator. And it has a start time, and it has an end time. And the end time will be marked when Jesus returns. Uh, There will be a moment where Jesus returns and he won't come to put a band-aid on a broken planet. He will come to make a new heaven and a new earth. It'd be incredible. But we learn throughout this series that we now live actually in the age of Adam. And it's called that by theologians because when God created this planet, Adam and Eve chose their own way. They rebelled against God and that had some consequences. That means that sin and death has ruled this earth ever since that first moment when creation was broken. That means that all of creation doesn't operate the way God intended to originally. We have hiccups along the way. We have broken pieces along the way. In fact, I like how Romans chapter 5 says it. It says it this way. You know the story of how Adam landed us in this dilemma? Did you think about that? Adam landed us in this dilemma. We're in first sin, then death. And no one exempt from either sin or death. Meaning that one out of every one people die. (laughs) Great consistency. No one gets a pass on that. No exemptions on sin and death. That sin disturbed relations with God in everything and everyone. So sin, this thing, this toxicity that entered into the human race, entered into creation. So everything is sort of broken. The way the world runs, the weather plans, everything is sort of broken, and humanity is. We've all been affected. So death, this huge abyss separating us from God, dominated the landscape. Even those who didn't sin precisely as Adam did by disobeying the specific command of God still had to experience this termination of life, this separation from God. So 
the first ancestor, Adam and Eve, they choose to do things outside of God's plan and it it affects all of God's creation. And ever since then, nothing has operated the way it should have. That's why we have a hashtag YOLO, you only live once. It's because of Adam. (laughs) So, you know, I I did this in the first gathering, so why don't we do this? Why don't we do a really sarcastic, because it's the last message, and you can say it out loud with me, a real sarcastic, like, thanks, Adam. Okay, you ready? I I know this might not be your personality, but just indulge me in a moment. Okay, let's do it together. Thanks, Adam. Yeah, thanks, Adam. You know, because of you, we have YOLO. We only live once. There's sin and then there's death. That's it. And, and yet, yet that YOLO has continued throughout all of history because all of us, we've done the same thing. We've chosen our way over God's way. But thank God the story doesn't end there. So we lived in the age of Adam, but when Christ came to this planet as a baby, and we'll celebrate this in December and then, and then he lived the life that you and I couldn't possibly live, the life that God intended Adam and Eve to live, one dependent on his father in heaven, one without sin, this toxic thing that separates us from God. And then he died and he rose again from the grave. We, we are now in the age of Christ. Jesus came to flip the script. The script was, you sin and you die. And Jesus came to flip the script that if we would place our faith and trust in him, that doesn't need to be our future. So when Jesus came to this planet, sin and temptation try to do to him what it tries to do to us. Sin and temptation comes to Jesus and it tries to control him. It promises him things like it promises us, things it can't deliver, can't possibly deliver. I often wonder, what was the devil even trying to do tricking Jesus? Jesus was there when Adam ate the, the, of the forbidden tree. Uh, Jesus saw the devastation of his decision on his creation. Jesus wept over that devastation in his creation. So I don't know who he was trying to fool, but in Matthew chapter 4, we see an account of the, the devil, this evil person, creature, who is trying to tempt Jesus to sin by not depending on his Father in heaven. And here's the last of the temptations. It says this, the devil took him to the peak of a huge mountain. He gestured expansively, pointing out all the earth's kingdoms. Then he said, they're yours, Jesus. Lock, stock, and barrel. Just, because there's always a just with anything that has temptation or sin attached. Just go down on your knees and worship me, and they're all yours. And Jesus' response is very direct. Jesus' refusal was curt, beat it, Satan. I like that modern translation. I wonder how many of you should be saying that. Beat it, Satan. Not by your authority, but by the authority of your follower of Jesus, of the spirit of the living God that's inside of you. Beat it, Satan. For the scriptures say, worship the Lord your God, and can you say this out loud with me? Exclusively him. Here's the thing about exclusivity. Exclusivity breeds intimacy. Uh, In marriage, it's the exclusivity of that relationship that breeds intimacy. Friends, sometimes in life, we feel a disconnect from God. We don't feel intimacy with God. And I would encourage you, if that's you, you should check through some of the, 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 the parts of your heart because often if we're not exclusive with God, we will not feel intimate with God. Are other people sharing or other things sharing your worship? Are other things stepping in And so God is no longer exclusive. Well, he goes on to say this, not only worship the Lord your God and only him, serve him. Meaning he has prepared in advance good works and things for you to do. So serve him with absolute single-heartedness. Man, I was thinking about that word. I I, I don't know if I ever use that word in my everyday vocabulary, single-heartedness. But I wonder how many of us are single-hearted in our devotion to God. I know we won't be perfectly. I know that for sure. 
But man, what a great question to pause on every once in a while. Because isn't it interesting in the verse it says, serve him with absolute. It's, a, it's an imperative. Absolute single-heartedness. Meaning, we love many things and stuff, but not like we love him. We value many things, but not like we value him. Uh, we small w worship many things, but not like we capital W worship him. I mean, he's first, single-heartedness. See, if you're like me, I've bowed my knee many times to lesser things. I wonder if you've ever bowed your knee to power and you've taken shortcuts to get power because you don't like that feeling when your things are out of your control. You ever, some of us are just wired that way. We feel more comfortable when things are within our control and it's very difficult to let go of control because it promises you uh, that feeling of in control. And so we go after power in this world. You know, some of us, we bow our knee to sex or we bow our knee to relationships because it promises us to dispel the loneliness we feel deep inside. But there, it's an empty promise. You take shortcuts in that area and you find out what many of us can find out. You can be in a relationship and it can be very lonely. I so wonder how many of us have bowed the knee to money because money, money's unique in that it promises you security. It promises you to insulate you from the trouble of this world, but it can't do it. But some of us, we bow the knee to it because that's what we want or that's what we feel we need. But Jesus didn't. Jesus didn't. You know, sin and, and temptation came his way and, and he answered the bell. But it wasn't just sin and temptation. Death came knocking and Jesus opened the door. And death took him, if you know the story in the gospel. Death buried him. Death beat him. But, but, Jesus, in this incredible moment, Jesus demonstrated that good will eventually always overcome evil. That life would and could beat death. And because of what Jesus has done, we don't need to have be in a YOLO cycle that you only live once. Because of what Jesus has done, I love this hashtag, Dr. Van came up with it. You'll study it in your community groups this week. But, but instead, it's yolt. Uh, you only live twice. <laughs> in other words, we're living our first life right now. But there's another one to come. And those two lives are inextricably connected. They're attached one to the other. You can't separate them. How you live this life will impact the life that you've yet to live. Now, I want to live a great life now. Do you want to live a great life now? What kind of lives are you guys living here? No one wants a great life? Oh, well, I got two yeses. People want to live great lives. I'm thankful you, listen, you and me, whoever you are over here, we're going to start a little support group for us. Because uh, I want to live a great life. I want to enjoy this life. I want to eat great food. I love food. I, I want to enjoy the Montreal Canadiens. Listen, I know I lost just most of you because most of you don't even like hockey. And if you do, you probably like that team down the street, whatever they're called. I, you know, I want to I have fun. I want to love my work and find passion in it. I love getting up. I love serving God. I love loving others. I want to laugh a lot in this life. I want to find joy in this life. Don't you? Thank you. That was the best of all the groups yet. I want to enjoy this life. But I do know this. In this life, there's rough and tough also. So even as I talk about enjoying life, you might be in rough and tough kind of hard to lean in and feel the joy coming from rough and tough. But Jesus would constantly say, and he'd constantly remind us in the Gospels, don't lean too heavy just into this life. That how you live this life will directly affect how you will and impact how you will live the next life. That it's not all just about this life. So, Dr. Van did such a great job last week talking about the fact that the 
last century Pentecostals and the first century Christians, they lived in a state of constant expectancy. Here's what they were expecting. They were expecting Jesus to return at any moment, any time. Nobody knew the hour. And here's the truth about expectancy. Expectancy, expectation fuels motivation. Expectation fuels motivation. Here's what I mean. A number of years ago, we were living in Montreal, my family, and we had some friends coming from the United Kingdom to stay with us. And because they were coming from the United Kingdom, uh, whenever anyone comes over to my house, uh, Shelly wants to take our level of cleanliness from here to here. I got, uh, it just, there's a certain measure of stress. I don't care if you're just dropping something off at our house. There's going to be a little bit of increased stress in our home of things being tidier than maybe they would be normally, right? But these people were coming extra long, so there was extra stress. And Shelly has this incredible gift. She has a gift of making her stress my stress. <laughs> Do you have people like that in your life? They just have a way of sharing the love. If they're under pressure, you're going to feel under pressure. She just has a way of doing that. And so we began, because they were coming for quite a while, we, we cleaned like we've never cleaned before. I mean, we cleaned the bathrooms, the bedrooms. I'm sure there are parts of the bedroom I don't know if I had gotten to before, but I got to them in advance of this. And I now remember when she asked me to clean the oven. It's just easier to say yes sometimes, guys. And I'm down on my knees and I'm scrubbing this thing out and I'm thinking, when was the last time I went to someone's house, opened up their oven and judged them? I just, I've never done that. I've never done that. But, you know, I, I love Shelly because she was leaving nothing to chance and therefore I could leave nothing to chance. Now, why would we work so hard for someone we are expecting to come? Well, a couple of reasons. One had to do with the length of time they were coming for. If they were dropping off something or having a coffee, we would have kind of cleaned a part of the house, you know, rearranged things and fixed up it a little bit, but, but not a lot. But the duration of time that they were staying with us meant that we were going to invest more in it. In fact, wisdom says this, invest more energy into things that have greater duration. Doesn't that just make sense? So Jesus is constantly talking about the life to come. Why? Because it's going to last longer than this life. This life is like, and it's done. We're talking about eternity. So Jesus is constantly, we'll look at a little bit in a moment. He's constantly saying, listen, invest, in, invest more energy in the things that will last and will last longer. It only makes sense, doesn't it? But it wasn't just about the duration of their time with us. It also was the depth of our relationship with this couple. We love these people. We had stayed with them in the UK. We think a lot of them. So, so there was a depth of relationship there, and that really goes to the next one. Wisdom would say this, invest more resources in things that have greater meaning. Doesn't that just make sense? But I gotta be honest, I watch us, and I say us meaning all of us. Uh, even though wisdom would say this, I watch us sometimes be quite foolish with this. I've watched people over the years invest way more in their working relationships than in their marriage relationship. I, I don't quite get it. Like, this person could be with you for the rest of your life. That person at work is coming and going. I have lots of great friends in life, and I think a lot of my friends, and I want to be a good friend to them. But not one of them is more important than my wife. But if I'm not careful, I could be investing in a lot of other people more than my most meaningful relationships. So again, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you get a pass here. Right? I'm leaning in with followers of Jesus and I'll say this, how much more with my relationship with God, which is more important than my relationship with Shelly, which is more important than my relationship with my sons, which is more important than my relationships with my friends. It means a lot. I, I'm thankful for all of those rich relationships, but the heart behind this is that we're leaning in and we are resourcing what it has greatest meaning in this life. So I think about this idea of expectation fueling motivation. 
So those first century Christians, they were so expectant of the imminent return of Christ that they were motivated to work. And we're going to talk about what they worked at in just a minute. They were motivated to work because they knew that how they live this life now would affect the life that they were going to live in turn. Jesus was a master of teaching this. He would say things in the gospel, and we're not going to focus much on this, but I just want to help you see why he said these things. He would say things you've heard Pastor Keith teach on this over the years. You've probably heard me. He'd say things like this, store up treasure in heaven. And why would he say that? He's helping us understand. He's helping us understand that, that what we hold on to in this life, we can't take with us. But what we let go of in this life, the generosity, the care, the attention we give others, the resources we share others, that every good and perfect gift comes from God and he has a plan for me to do some of his things with it. All of those things, whatever I give, actually goes ahead of me and is stored up in heaven. In other words, don't invest everything in this life. And the other reason, he reveals why he teaches this, because he says, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Okay, you ready for our truth moment? Sometimes when you do a series, and we don't often do series, and I don't know when I last heard a series on end times in a church. I'm glad we're doing one. Sometimes I think some people glaze over. It's just like, I can't wait for this series to be done. <laughs> or some people have fear around it. Some of it is because of the way they were raised and they heard a lot of kind of things and it was a lot of guilt or fear motivated. But sometimes, I'm going to be honest with you, some of us aren't interested because we've invested everything in this life. And there's nothing waiting for us. And so we're interested in maintaining what we have. Jesus warns us because he loves us. Don't invest everything in this life. It's gone. Invest and store up treasure in the one that will last forever. Forever. So he's constantly shifting our focus from now to eternity. That now matters, but so does this. And now affects that. So, so this is why, and Jesus comes, and he does this incredible work. And in John chapter 9, verse 4, he actually speaks to his disciples about what you and I should be doing in anticipation that someday we're going to be in forever. He says this, we must quickly carry out the tasks assigned to us. The idea is this, God has a plan for your life, that he has prepared good works in advance for you to do, so we're to quickly carry out the tasks assigned to us. I wonder if you feel a sense of mission that God has tasks assigned to you. And it's more than just for your family and taking care of yourself. But, but who has sent us? Because why? Because the night is coming and then no one can work. Here's what he means. There's things we can do in this life we won't be able to do in the next. But if we'll work and roll up our sleeves in this life, it will directly affect the next life. There are things that we experience now, and the two areas, I was, I've been just thinking about the way I was raised even, but also just in light of scripture, the first century believers as well as the last century Pentecostals, and I grew up in Pentecostal roots. In this church, I love this church, because you look around and we have every culture in the world, I just, I love it. I love the, uh, the diversity of generation in this church, uh, and I also love the diversity of backgrounds. I know people in this church, you're Catholic, Anglican, Baptist, Pentecostal. We, we're a kind of collection of everyone because we're centrally followers of Jesus, right? <laughs> I was just making sure I was in the right place. I was just making sure. And we're followers of Jesus, but, but, but you know our DNA, we're Pentecostal in practice and theology. And many of you, that's why you love our gatherings. Because you feel that sense of expectancy. We believe God is here. We believe he's right in the room right now. The Holy Spirit is at work in people's hearts and minds right now. I believe that. But I know this. When it comes to the work of God and that work that they engaged in, it was in twofold. One was they were trying to stay pure. It's work to stay pure. But the idea was simply like this. So Shelley and I... This is funny. So the family that was coming from the United Kingdom, and we cleaned that house, you know, we cleaned it a little too early. 
like about two days before they came. We should have we cleaned it like two hours before they came. Because for those two days, I couldn't sit here, I couldn't sit there, don't put anything there. I might as well move in a tent in the backyard, right? You know what it's like when everything's just right and you don't want to mess it up by having humans there? So, but there's a sense of being ready. And those first century believers and others, they were staying pure because they wanted to be ready when Jesus came again. I want to be ready for him. And the other thing they engaged in their work, and they were unrelenting in this, it was sharing Jesus. Unrelenting. In fact, they sacrificed their energies, their resources were targeted towards sharing Jesus with other people. In the first century, they would lay down their lives. They would go to cultures they'd never been in. They would cross over religious barrier lines and different religions to share about Jesus. It was like a phonetic pace. Why? Because they had the expectancy that Jesus was coming. And there was a second life waiting for everyone. But there was one that was going to be with God and one apart from God. And they loved the people in their lives. And the Holy Spirit who filled them gave them a love for people they didn't even know. And they didn't want to see people apart from God. The early Pentecostals, they sold their homes, some of them. They moved overseas. They did whatever they could to share Jesus with others. That was the work in this life that had directly affected how they lived the next. So that's where I want to spend our time today. I want to talk first about staying pure. So we look at what the Apostle Peter says. He says this, as obedient children, and by children he means that if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been adopted into the family of God, now you have a father in heaven, that makes you his child. As obedient children, let yourselves be pulled into a way of life shaped by God's life. This is really important, this verb here, pulled into. If you're raising children, that's a really important phrase. Because as parents, we want stuff so bad for our kids at times, we push them into attending. We push them into complying. We push them into saying something right about God. But we all know you can get some sort of behavior modification and obedience by pushing. But it's totally different when you're pulling. It's because your life is so deep in Christ, you're pulling the people around you deeper into him. It's like a magnet as opposed to pushing. You're not bulldozing people into faith. It's a magnetic faith because it's so real and authentic in you. People are attracted to it. They're pulled to it. Do you get the difference? It's, it's seismic. So pulled into God's life, a life energetic and blazing with, can you say this word with me? Holiness. God says... I am holy, so say it with me, you be holy. God said, I am holy, so you be holy. So these first Christians, these last century Pentecostals, they, they wanted to be in the world, but not of the world. They wanted to be ready for when Jesus returned. They wanted to be holy people, pure people. Now, when Jesus came on the scene in that first century, uh, when he entered into this world and he began to navigate the religious landscape of the world, he encountered holiness groups. Uh, primarily, you'd see the Pharisees in the Bible, and you probably, if you've read the gospel, you've seen as many interactions with them. But there's another group called the Essenes also. These were people who practiced holiness and purity. The Essenes were interesting. They lived, and actually Dr. Van and Pastor Keith and I visited the area they lived in. It's like in the desert. They lived a life of austerity. They lived an ascetic lifestyle. Uh, they moved out of the city. They moved away from people that were impure and unclean, and they isolated themselves. You could say their eschatology, and if you remember from week one what that word means, it means the study of end times. Their eschatology led them to be isolated. They isolated themselves from people they saw as being impure. And it was kind of interesting. They thought if they lived a really, 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 really holy life, that they would hasten the day that the Lord would return, on the day of the Lord, they called it, and then they would be a part of the kind of the, the judge trial, looking over the rest of humanity and judging them. Then there was this Pharisee group, which we're more familiar with if you read the Gospels. 
And the Pharisees were an interesting group, and Jesus had many encounters with them. They, they believed that the kingdom of God would come as would be established in the culture and in the leadership structure. So in other words, it'd be kind of like in modern day, if we were trying to get every Christian elected, whether they're qualified or not, the Pharisees were trying to drive that train down the road. And so they followed, they were incredible uh, command keepers. In fact, they memorized and tried to keep 613 commands. I can't even memorize my cell phone number. That's a lot of commands to memorize and a lot of commands to live. And for them, their eschatology led them not to isolation because they were around people, but separation. They stayed separate from the people. Now, their understanding, both the Essenes and the Pharisees, comes from some Old Testament teaching in the Torah. They understood holiness this way. You have holy people and you have unholy people. You have clean things, you have unclean things. And when holiness and unholiness touch, one of two things was going to happen. Either the unholy thing would be just demolished or the holy thing would become unholy, would become unclean. So it only stood to reason for them that you need to build separations between you and whatever is unholy or unclean or you need to isolate yourself from any situation or person that might be unclean. So they develop boundaries. You can see this throughout the Bible. You can certainly, I've done this before with this church, if you journey with us any time, they did concentric circles of holiness. They saw the world this way. This was their lens. They saw that there was a lot of countries in that world, a lot of nationalities, a lot of cultures, but there was one, only one holy land, and it was Israel. So everyone inside of that, it was a place of holiness. Now, inside of that holy land, there was lots of towns and lots of cities, but there was only one that was the holy city, separate, different, apart from holy, and that was Jerusalem. Then in that holy city, there was only one building of all the buildings there that was the holiest building, and it was the holy temple. And inside of that temple... There was a room. And of all the rooms in all the world, in all the cities, in all the nations, there was one place that was holier than them all, and it was the Holy of Holies. See, friends, every time you moved in one layer of the circle, it became more exclusive and less people were included. It wasn't about being inclusive. It was about being exclusive. And that's the way they sliced up the world. Now, the reason they did this was it was an easy way to see who was in and who was out, who was holy and who was not. It was also the identity markers of their community so that they could look and know who was holy, who was unholy. So Jesus, most of his encounters with the Pharisees had to do with three sets of laws that they would keep. One were dietary laws, so what you could eat. And you know, if you're a good Jew, you couldn't eat pork, right? So that meant no bacon. Uh, and it also meant uh, there were also Sabbath-keeping laws. They had tons of rules about what you could do or couldn't do on the Sabbath. And the third what had to do with circumcision. And they majored on these peripheral commands at, to the detriment of the central ones. And Jesus calls them out on it. This is why he mixes it up with them so much. Because they were majoring over barriers and boundaries that were peripheral commands, Jesus wasn't attacking the commands. He went after their hearts. Because the central command in Scripture, every good Jew would know it, was the Shema. And the Shema was the loving of God with heart and soul and strength. You know what this is? This is a relationship. The loving of God with your heart, with your soul, and your strength. It was like, I'm all in with you. And they took the relationship and they re replaced it with rules. And Jesus calls them out on it over and over. See, it wasn't as if this was a relationship first and then you had some boundaries that were appropriate. I'm in a covenant relationship with my wife. Because I'm in a promised relationship with her, there are certain boundaries that keep that relationship safe. 
I entered into it. But it flows out of relationship with her. It's not rules first. It's my relationship with her first. And when you get that backwards as a follower of Jesus, this is where the toxicity begins to enter into your spiritual walk. This is how things begin to shift and change inside of each of us. So, so when it comes to why they would do this, why did they center on it? The only reason they made much of the dietary laws and the Sabbath laws was because they could quickly identify who was in their community and who wasn't. Because how do you measure loving God? How do you measure someone loving God with their heart and mind? You'd have to be in relationship with them. You'd have to know them. This allowed them not to have to be in relationship with people or know them, but they could easily tell by the way you dressed, the way you talked, the way you behaved. They could tell who was in, who was out, and they were able to find comfort in that because as long as they stayed in, they were safe. They were okay. So they adopted as every subgroup has always adopted, patterns of behavior, of talk, and of dress that identifies them as being distinct and different. And we do it still to this day. And if you were in the 1960s right now and you saw this van going down the street, and you saw maybe a waft of smoke coming out, guy driving it in a tie-dyed shirt with granny glasses on, flipping you the peace sign, <laughs> And you heard him yell out the window, make love, not war. <laughs> You've probably encountered a group of people that are distinguished by the way they dressed, the way they talked, the way they acted. You would have encountered what group? The hippies, right? They had these markers that easily identified who they were. Now, if it's the 2000s and you encountered someone that looked like this, with a plaid shirt, a beard, drinking an espresso while Instagramming it, and wearing clothes that looked like they're poor, but they cost a lot of money. You've encountered a hipster, a hipster. Now, if you encounter someone like this, <laughs> someone with a, a dry sense of humor and, and a teacher with glasses, you've probably encountered someone that is ancient. That's right, ancient, ancient, yeah, yeah. Uh, friends, he asked for it. He asked for it. <laughs> no, but we, we, you know, there's something in the human, on all of us as humans, we want exclusivity. And we begin to build identifying markers that help identify who's in and who's out. But, but Jesus takes exception to a lot of this, but I wonder what your markers are. What are your boundaries for what's holy and what's not? I was thinking about it last week when Dr. Van was teaching. I was thinking of the churches I grew up in. I grew up in Pentecostal churches, and I remember Calvary Temple was one of my churches, Crossroads Cathedral. I remember Crescent Valley Gospel Center. And I grew up in holiness roots, we call it. And we had lots of rules. Not, not, maybe not 613, but we had lots of rules. And our rules were, helped us identify right away who was in, and who was up? Who was holy? Who was not holy? So uh, when I was growing up, a lot had to do with the way you dressed. So if you're holy, please nobody say amen here. <laughs> uh, you'd be wearing a suit or a dress on a, in a gathering like this. You would, I remember as a kid, I'd be, there's six of us kids and mom and dad would dress us that morning. We'd get dressed and I'd wear those dress pants and that button-up shirt. I mean, that type of torture was always reserved for the holy day, the Lord's day. And we would go to church and we'd have a tie on and, and that would be an indicator of who was in or who out. And listen, if you've got a shirt, uh, shirt and tie and a suit on, I love it. Great, fantastic, whatever, whatever helps you feel comfortable. That's wonderful. But, but those were holiness markers. And it was interesting, when we were in youth group, oh, my wife Shelly will remember this because we grew up together. I mean, you weren't allowed to wear jeans to the youth group. You had to wear some sort of other pants because that was not appropriate. Then I went to Bible college, and I'm studying theology, and I had to wear a suit and tie to every class. Now, if I had a class at 9 in the morning and I was done for the day, I, I could change after, but I had to change into suit pants and a tie and a shirt. It was only until after 6 p.m. After 6 p.m. I could wear jeans because everyone knows jeans become holy after 6 p.m., <laughs> right? 
I mean, there are all kinds of rules. Now, I, 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 they sound funny now, and for many of you who are brand new, you're just like, what, what kind of cult is that? No, listen, there were good intentions, and I'll tell you why in a moment. But we also had all kinds of rules about what we couldn't do. That was where most of our rules were. The things you couldn't do were more prominent. So growing up, I mean, I couldn't go to play pool or bowl. Why? Because gambling happens there. You can't gamble. You can't, you can't swear. You can't smoke. You can't drink. You can't dance. Uh, you know, one of the rules my dad changed real quick is, uh, you know, you couldn't play on the Sabbath. So it would be Sunday and he'd want us not to be playing. Well, that lasted two weeks. When you have six kids, which five of them were one year apart, uh, you like to nap Sunday afternoon, you want them out of the house. So I remember two weeks in, finally he said, get out, everybody go out, can we go play? Do whatever you want to do. I mean, holiness was, was sacrificed on the altar of sleep, a Sunday nap. Some of you guys like those things. I, I remember those days, and it was, we were known for what... We, what we wouldn't do. This is where we grabbed onto a lot of Old Testament stuff, not New Testament stuff. Things like tattoos and everything else. And, you know, the context, and this is why it's dangerous to look back and judge previous generations for their context or their rules, because they may have made more sense in that context. Uh, tattoos, when it mentions in the Old Testament, had, was a mark of slavery. So it's not that it's a mark of slavery today. It's not a holiness marker now. But we'll take something that was prohibited in the old and make it prohibited in 2019. Or, or the way people dress even today. It's different than it was 25 years ago. Have you noticed? The culture is more casual. Everything is. But 25 years ago, it was, you, you dressed up more. It was just normal. I know this. My grandmother got dressed up to go grocery shopping. She had a dress she wore at the house. And then she had a nicer dress she wore when she went out grocery shopping. Why? Because she was going to town. Going to look good. And then she had an even nicer dress when she went to church. You know, it just was successive orders of that. It was just the way the culture operated. It doesn't mean present generations are less respectful. It's just different now. So what are your holiness markers? What are the things that determine? And I say this, and I mean this with all sincerity. Those holiness markers were well-intended. They were. There was good intentions. There was an attempt to protect our children and others from the advancement of impurity and unholiness in this world and culture. But if you're not careful as a follower of Jesus, you can do the same thing the Pharisees did. You can forget the Shema. What's the most important thing? How you dress? The only prescription in scripture is this, is be modest. That's all it says. But, but the most important is this. Love the Lord your God. Love him with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And then the second one, love your neighbor as you love yourself. But it's harder to measure that, isn't it? It's easier to measure people's behavior. It's easier to measure people's morality. And by that, you can, dis, you can dismiss them. It's much harder to measure. You know what it's like, friends. I'm going to be very frank with you to say, listen, there are some people who are not followers of Christ and they love their neighbors way better than followers of Christ. Because we don't like measuring that. It's easier to keep a checklist. And I'm not against it because I understand it. Because I've done it, and I do it. Here's, here's how the world operates. It feels like there's no boundaries, especially in this era. It feels like there's no boundaries to anything. And I think rightfully so, we get nervous. We get nervous. It almost feels like anything and everything can go. And so what we start to do, and we mean well by it, is we start to build some, some walls that need to be built in our estimation. You know, I, do, I did it a lot to protect my children. I did it to protect them from the, I mean, insulate them from the culture and the world and the things around me that I saw as being unholy. Uh, because I felt like uh, the language I would use often is something like, it's a slippery slope. I don't know if you've ever heard that language. So I prohibited tons of stuff. And I'm not saying this is bad. Not all of it was bad. Prohibited stuff. I, 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 I built safety in there. 
I, I made the, sure there was enough rules and boundaries and stuff because when I felt comfortable inside of here, I felt safer inside of here. I felt safer knowing my family was in, sa- inside of here. It's kind of like when you, you know when the winter's coming and there's this winter storm outside, but you're inside in the warmth. Isn't it beautiful? You know, if you're not shoveling it, if you're not in it or busting in it, it's beautiful on the outside, and you're looking at the storm, but you feel the comfort and the coziness of your family all together. So we kind of build that wall and that barrier against us and because we borrow from the Torah, and we believe that things can make us so unholy if we come into proximity with them. So we separate a little bit. We isolate. See, we think we're building walls that protect. What if what you've done is just build a cage? What if your holiness rules become less about relationships and more about protection? What if they're more protectionistic than they are loving? See, I would never advocate taking down some of these barriers. I think some of us have taken down way too many. There are some things in scripture that's pretty clear. I I told you I'm, I'm married, so I don't need to pray about adultery. God, what do you think? I don't need to pray about it because very clear in scripture, but there's a lot of stuff we major on that is not clear. All I know is if you built this, I'm going to say, I really think you should take down this front one. How are people going to get to you? And how are you going to get to people? How are we going to live in loving relationships if we're housed by ourselves to protect ourselves? I think it is a wrong theology of holiness and the power of God because we get so scared. Listen, I remember years ago walking my boys to church, to to school, (laughs) and I'm praying protection over them every day. God, protect them, protect them. And there's nothing wrong with praying protection, so just keep this all in balance. But I felt such conviction in my heart. And I know it was the Holy Spirit speaking to me. You're making, you're going to grow two boys that are going to be afraid. You keep talking about how powerful this world is. What about greater is he that is in me than he that is in this world? Why are you afraid? Why can't your holiness and distinctness affect others instead of everything affecting you? Well, it all comes back to relationship. If we're rooted in Christ and we're abounding in our faith and love, you don't need to fear that somebody else can pull you from what you love most. The problem is, is sometimes maybe we're not as deeply in love with God, so we're easily influenced by other people. That's why parents build barriers, because they know how influenced their children are. One of the best things you can do as a parent is you fall deeper in love with Jesus. (laughs) And you become the magnet that keeps your kid close. And they get to see that, a genuine faith, and they'll fall in love with that same Jesus. Theologian from England, Tom Wright, he said this. He said, the identity markers that will proclaim the authenticity of people of God will be a circumcised heart and a diet of justice and love. Then people will not simply try to do right things. I love that. They're not just going to try to keep rules. They will be the kind of persons who want to do the right things. They will be clean inside. This is where Jesus, I said all that to say this. Jesus always said holiness was an inside job, not an outside job. Holiness was an inside job. Not an outside job. So he comes to those same Pharisees and he calls them whitewashed tombs. Woo! He's saying this, you look good on the outside. You're keeping all the rules. You're staying separate. You look pretty on the outside and the inside of your life is rotten. The attitude you have You know, we can go around with a lot of things between our ears, cycling in our minds, that we wouldn't want people to know the vileness that is in there, but on the outside, we've kept the the rules. And Jesus said, no, 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 that's not how I look at it. I'm looking on the heart. 
Don't major on the outside. Major on the inside. See, holiness in the Bible is described this way. Holiness is to be set apart. Can you say this word with me? For God. It's to be dedicated to God. It's to belong to God. Holiness is about relationship. Holiness is not primarily about morality. Now, nobody leave here and says, that guy doesn't believe morality doesn't matter. I'll, I'll jump to it. Holiness is not primarily about morality. It is primarily about relationship. And from that relationship, that imperative towards relationship, comes a morality. It doesn't, restri- it doesn't make your morality less. It expands it. So, I'm married. I want to be faithful out of the context of love, not rule. Is that... I could stay faithful to Shelley and not love her. And I've kept the rules. Do you think she'd be satisfied with that? That's like being in a relationship with a robot. <laughs> you know, I guess they're doing all the right things, but I'm feeling none of it. You can be in a relationship with God and you can check your list and not love him. It's really tough when you're raising or if you've been raised in the church, some of us, because of our personality and temperament, we're good at keeping the rules. I'd rather have someone a little messy, but they have a spark in their love for Jesus. And they, they don't always get it right, and they, they're struggling, but they love Jesus, than somebody who knows what to do and does the right thing, but there's no spark. Okay, I probably said way too much. Here's why this is important. Because the holiness of the first Christians didn't lead them to be separate. It led them to share Jesus. It led them to share Jesus with others. In fact, let's look at this text. This is from the book of Acts. The first century believers are being spread out and it says this. Jesus told them, you don't get to know the time. Timing is the Father's business. Pastor Keith talked about that a few weeks ago. He's talking about when he'll return. What you get is the Holy Spirit And when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be able to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all over Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. He's taking, he's saying this, listen, that when the Holy Spirit impacts your life, he makes you a more loving person. That no longer is it just about you and your family or a few choice people. God puts in you a love for all people. Even the ones, even the ones that you, try, you have trouble loving. I mean, we all have irritating people in our life. I'm not even talking about them. I'm talking about the people that they live a different lifestyle than you. They believe things that are so diametrically opposed. And, and you got that little hate thing going on inside of you. You don't call it hate because you're a follower of Jesus. But, but you got that thing inside of you that you want to, you just, you can't stand them. Yeah, you can't. You can't stand them. The baptism of the Holy Spirit that Pastor Keith was talking about was an empowerment, an enablement to witness. And it fueled the last century Pentecostals and the early Christians because they were just, they began to have a love for other people that were different than them. Such a love that they were willing to risk some things to share Jesus with others. And if you've never been to one of our Holy Spirit gatherings, I want to encourage you to come. I'll tell you, tell you, we just came off a staff retreat this last week, and all of the staff will tell you the same thing. One night, Pastor Keith taught on the, the Holy Spirit, and all I can say is it was special. I came home, I said to Shelly, it was the, I needed that in my life. I just needed that moment. I want that for you, friends. This might be new to you, but I inver- encourage you to come and lean in. Stay pure Share Jesus. In Luke, uh, Jesus sets a man free, a demoniac. He was possessed by an evil spirit. And then Jesus gives him a bit of a command that I think is interesting because it simplifies what we need to be doing. He said this to him. He said, go home and tell everything God did in you. He says to the guy, he set him free. He's restored him. He's healed him. He's brought him back in a relationship with God. And he says, now go home. Go home and tell everything everything God did in you. So he went back and he preached all over town everything Jesus had done in him. It's pretty simple. 
God does something in you, you share it. There's, there's really two imperatives here. The one is, uh, yeah, God must have done something in you. Has God done something in you, friend? I mean, has he done something in you? I mean, who doesn't want God to do something in them? I don't know. I want God. I need God to keep doing stuff in me. Anyone arrived at a point where you feel like, I don't need any more from God? And Man, wrong crowd today. <laughs> I hope not. I hope you're still hungering for it. But I know this. If you've experienced that moment when God forgave you, maybe you need to do as the psalmist, return to the joy of your salvation. And remember that moment when he restored you back in a relationship with God. When all of a sudden, everything you had done that was counted against you was washed away. That there was no residue of guilt or condemnation in your life. That you had been set free and you knew it. Have you ever been set free or healed emotionally or mentally or, or spiritually in some way? And then you know God has done this for me. Well, that now qualifies you to share Jesus. That's all you need to be qualified to share Jesus. God must have done something in you. Then we must share what God has done in us. Don't you wish we could take must out and just say we can? If we want, share what God has done in us. See, friends, there's work to be done in this life. And the work is this. Stay pure. Stay pure. Not but through a bunch of lists, but there should be something that distinguishes you from the culture and the rhythm and the pattern of this world that your thinking has been renewed and now you live your life in an acceptable and pleasing way to the Lord as a living sacrifice for him. Holy and pleasing for him. You're ready for his return. And then share Jesus. See, here's the truth, friends. Jesus will return. And we're closer to it today than we were yesterday. And when he returns... Their work that we can do now will end. I can do work right now, but someday it will end. So the question I've been asking throughout this whole series, I'd ask you to ask for yourself right now. What are you going to wish you had done then? What are you going to wish you had done now in this life when you get to the next one? Because there are only some things that you can do now. Share Jesus. Stay pure, friends. Don't, don't invest everything in this life. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for this community. For everyone online and in this room. God, if I love this church, and I do, I love the people that are here. And God, I love the roots. I love how I was raised. And God, I know that uh, it's easy to look back and judge, but that's that's... We'll, we'll be judged by successive generations should you tarry. God, may we do the best with what we have in this generation. May we really do the best. But God, I give you thanks for my roots. And I, I pray, God, for my friends here. Anyone who's brand new, maybe they don't know you, to those who've known you longer than I've been alive. God, would you bless the people that are here today? And, and I know that they probably have an idea of where they need your blessing. But God, I pray you bless them beyond that. I pray, God, that you would remind them how deeply committed you are to them. That you would remind them, if they're in a rough and tough spot right now, how much you love them. That you would remind them how single-hearted you are towards them. And God, I pray, Lord, their response would be single-hearted, absolute devotion to you. Because you are worthy to be praised. You are worthy to be honored and worshipped. And God, we know it's more than just a song. It's the way we live. And we want to live in a way, God, that is going to honor you. Lord, may our hearts, may we become the kind of people who want to do the right things not have to do the right things. Would you change us from the inside out? And so God, help us to stay pure. 
And Holy Spirit, we need your help with this. Empower us to share Jesus with others. This life will be done before we know it. And I know this, God. There's not one of us in this room or online that aren't going to want to wish that we took more people with us. So God, give us a boldness that is respectful and appropriate. Give us a sensitivity. And God, give us a courage just to be able to share what Jesus has done in our lives. In your name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful, we hope you join us at one of our campuses if you're in the GTA for a weekend gathering. If you're listening from somewhere else in the world, we'd encourage you to join us at onechurch.to slash live. We believe everyone can be a part of what Jesus is doing both in our community and in our city. So if you'd like to connect with us at a deeper level, visit us at onechurch.to slash next steps. See you next time.